I resign effective immediately. No, uh, <laughs> good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and this is our final week of Nope. Our last week on this series we've been doing on the book of Jonah, not Job. Scott really got that in my head. I'm gonna do that this entire sermon. The book of Jonah, this satire story about a runaway prophet that's designed to sneak behind our defenses to get us laughing before revealing that its absurd characters are exaggerated versions of us, flipping its jokes into critiques, not of those people, but of our absurdities. And that's because, as I have said a thousand times, you guys are probably so sick of this, that's because Jonah, like all good satire, is meant to be a what? A mirror. This mirror that reveals where we've become Jonah's in the world, where we've allowed humanity's worst tendencies to fester within us as the God's people, all for the purpose of, as we read this book, letting God, by his grace, get the Jonah's out of us. I'm going to be, I'm going to miss saying that, guys. Oh my gosh. Have y'all enjoyed Jonah so far? Yes, it has been a hoot. Who thinks it's been really funny? What an idiot, this Jonah guy. I have loved this series. This is one of those books that when I was in seminary, it was game-changing when my teacher talked to me about it. It was like the first time someone highlighted that this is meant to be a comedy. How I read it changed entirely. Has anyone else had that in this series? It just like pops in ways that it never did before. So I'm gonna miss it. But before finishing Jonah, I actually wanna talk about something else. I wanna talk about the most underrated movie of this century. And that is Arrival. Has anyone seen this movie? This movie rules, y'all. This movie rules. It is an amazing flick about humanity's first encounter with this alien species that arrives across the globe pretty much overnight. And I won't spoil its central plot because it has a twist that is truly unbelievable. You just have to see this. But I do want to talk about one aspect of Arrival that's been burrowed in my brain ever since I saw it for the first time. You see, one of its coolest elements is how it, in a way I've never seen before or since in film, uniquely captures the tangible issues that would arise if we tried to communicate with a species that's truly alien. One that neither talks at all, much less uses language in the same way that humanity does. And in that, it depicts this fascinating sequence where each country is trying to use different tools to establish a baseline for communicating with these beings, flashcards, lights, etc. In particular, though, one country experiences increasing hostility with these aliens as the film progresses. And in that, as the conflict climaxes, there's this fascinating revelation as to why this is happening. And it's really strange because what it's revealed is that this conflict is growing because this one nation has been trying to communicate with these aliens through, who wants to guess? Through board games. And at first you're watching the movie and you're like, so what? But then my queen, Amy Adams, goddess of all actresses, the protagonist of this movie, explains the subtle yet disastrous ramifications of this choice. And that is, think about it. That is, as a competitive game, it carries an inherent assumption of opposition, of us versus them, winners versus losers. 
Thus, as the foundation for communication with these aliens, it fundamentally framed their relationship through the lens of conflict, through a zero-sum game from the very start. In that sense, it was inevitable that this was only ever going to lead to hostility at some point. Are you all tracking with me on that? And this simple idea has stuck with me, that our framework for communication and thus reality determines pretty dramatically how we exist within said reality. And I think it stuck with me largely because of just how true it rings in my observations of this world lately. What do I mean by that? Well, I think for me, it's become apparent that humans gravitate towards framing reality along tribalistic, competitive, zero-sum game lines. Us versus them, winners and losers, insiders versus outsiders. In fact, we seemingly embrace such frameworks even when they clearly aren't working for us. More so, even when disaster is inherent to their design. To the point that we prefer these winners versus losers kind of frameworks over win-win ones. Sometimes even more than ones where we might be the winners. We prefer an us versus them situation even when we're the ones losing in it. Are y'all tracking with me on that? This seems to be baked into our human condition. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And I start here because it's that oppositional framework for reality that's going to be explored in Jonah's conclusion today. And spoiler, it's a doozy. This sermon, this text, is a gut punch about so much of what we get wrong about this whole God thing and how we are called to live in this world. So buckle up. But first, as usual, let's recap where we've been so far. Recall, God sent Jonah, the prophet, to deliver a message to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's arch enemies. But Jonah said, nope, fleeing on this journey that's included storms and sea monsters that led him to rock bottom, where Jonah finally surrendered to God, said, fine, uncle, and went on his way to Nineveh, where last week we witnessed this amazing spiritual revival. The entire city of Nineveh changed over the course of just 24 hours and received the grace of God. It is one of the most beautiful scenes in scripture, which should make Jonah thrilled, right? Mission accomplished. You have crushed this whole being a prophet thing. And yet... Do y'all think that's how Jonah is going to respond in our last chapter today? No. Instead, we find a dark, provocative exchange that concludes this incredibly strange book. So, Nineveh repents, great success. Jonah 4, verse 1, we read, But to Jonah, this seemed what? Very wrong. And he became angry. Jonah prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Is Jonah thrilled? No, no. No, Jonah lays into God because he thinks God has gotten this whole story just fundamentally wrong, right? Now, to get why, let's recall the last chapter, chapter three. Though Jonah went to Nineveh, did he deliver God's full message to all of Nineveh as commanded? 
No, he did not. Instead, Jonah walked through just one third of the city and delivered a five word sermon in Hebrew. Anyone memorize it by chance? It's pretty short. You can keep this in your back pocket. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That is it. <laughs> it's the worst sermon ever, right? And why'd Jonah do this? Yeah, because he's quiet quitting. He's trying to tank his prophetic mission. He's trying to give as little information as possible so he can get God off his back, but at the same time, not actually give the Ninevites enough of the deets to avoid being smoten. So he doesn't want them to listen. So he just undermines his entire job in the first place. But hilariously, did this work? No, because Jonah's, despite Jonah's best efforts, all of Nineveh, including its cows, repented in the most hyperbolic way fashion, surrendering entirely their violence and their evil ways and receiving grace, embracing the God of Israel. And in that, God played this joke on Jonah, because remember, in Hebrew, that word overthrown can mean Nineveh being destroyed, but it can also describe something being turned over totally transformed into its opposite in the world. Thus, Jonah's warning came true, just not in the whole wrathful God way that he had intended. Because Nineveh was turned over through how God's love and grace transformed them into an entirely different thing in the world. Got him. Did Jonah find that funny? Does Jonah think this is a good bit? No, because as we see here, he throws the most epic tantrum imaginable. He's outraged that God is gracious, and even more disturbing than that, he's ticked that God has used what he intended for evil to bring about good for other people, which is dark. Jonah says, that's why I ran. I knew what kind of God you are and that you'd somehow find a way to forgive these wicked people. I mean, yikes, right? But it actually gets worse because did anyone recognize the language that Jonah uses to describe God with this, in this text? It's an incredibly famous verse from the Bible. Jonah's actually quoting this repeated biblical phrase that first appears in the book of Exodus chapter 34. And I just want to set the scene of when this first appears in the Bible. So get this in your mind. Israel's enslaved in Egypt until God rescues and leads them to this place called Mount Sinai where their leader Moses meets with God and commits on Israel's behalf to worship God alone. However, who knows what happens immediately after this? Israel immediately rebels in this thing called the golden calf debacle. Yet, despite this, God immediately forgives them. God chooses to remain faithful to Israel despite their faithlessness, which leaves Moses just stunned. So what we find is that he asks God, what kind of God are you? To which God responds, I am the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellious and sin. It is a beautiful description of God's character from his own mouth. And this repeated reminder throughout the Bible that Israel exists purely because of who God is. Gracious, merciful, faithful, loving. So, with that in mind, think about what Jonah is doing here. He's taking God's description of himself and in utter contempt, spitting it back into God's face as a bad thing. Saying, essentially, 
I knew you'd forgive those undeserving Ninevites because you're so merciful. You've always been this way, God, and I hate it. I ran because I want to know part of this idiocy. And yet you dragged me here anyway, and look who was right. It's so vitriolic, petty, and let's be honest, stupid. Because, let me ask you, would Jonah be an Israelite, which he's been so arrogant about, or even alive, if God wasn't this Exodus 34 way? No, because Israel wouldn't exist, and he'd have drowned chapters ago. <laughs> Jonah doesn't hate that God's this way towards him. Jonah hates that God's this way to those people. That's depraved, but also so on brand. So then in classic Jonah fashion, what does he do? He concludes melodramatically, asking God to just kill him because he's just so disgusted. He'd rather die than live under a God who'd forgive his enemies. Who thinks this is sane behavior? <laughs> Not me. But does God kill Jonah? No, because he's this Exodus 34 God. So instead, in love, God tries to reach Jonah. We continue in verse four. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Great question. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So God engages, which as a toddler's parent is a mistake, never negotiate with terrorists. But still, that's why he's God and I'm not. But God asks, is your anger justified? Which again, is a really good question. But how does Jonah respond? He doesn't. <laughs> he puts God on mute and just walks away. He goes to this hill outside the city and he sets up this little camp overlooking Nineveh. And I want to unpack this for a second. Why does Jonah do this? Well, it says that he wants to see what happens to Nineveh, which is odd because we already know what's going to happen to Nineveh because they embrace God and God embraced them. But apparently Jonah still hopes to see something different. And do we think that Jonah's hoping for positive things for Nineveh? No. no. He's hoping that God realizes that Jonah's been right this entire time about all this Nineveh stuff, changes his mind, and gets his smiting on. In other words, in other words, I want you to think about this. Jonah's essentially laying out a blanket at Tom Brown on 4th of July in the hopes of seeing fireworks, except for in this case, it's the death of an entire city. Yeah. That is pure evil, is it not? But God's faithful, abounding in love, slow to anger. So God tries reaching Jonah again, this time in a new, stranger way. Verse 6, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was what? Very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which strewed through the plant, womp, womp, so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said again, it would be better for me to die than to live. So God provides this plant to give shade for Jonah, which makes Jonah feel very happy. A quick turnaround from wanting death and also the only time in the entire book of Jonah that he is described as being happy. Why is he happy? Because he's selfish, and he only gets happy when things do stuff for him. But God's got jokes. 
Because then this tiny worm eats the plant and Jonah loses his comfy shade. And how does Jonah respond the moment discomfort returns to his life? He flips all the way back to wanting to die again because he's a toddler. Oh my goodness, Jonah. Oh my gosh. It's wild. What a roller coaster. But God's actually setting Jonah up here. God's up to something. Verse 9, God said to Jonah again, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, Jonah said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Now, notice, God repeats the same question from the beginning, but this time directs it towards a different object. This is a ninja move. God couldn't get Jonah to wrestle with his delusional resentment over Nineveh receiving grace, so God gets Jonah to do the same kind of wrestling, but now over the demise of this little plant. And Jonah responds this time. It works. He plays ball. Has God gone through his hard heart? No, because what does he say? He says, of course it's right for me to feel this way. Kill me already. Which, my goodness, who's ready to give up on Jonah at this point? This guy is never going to get it. But instead... God springs his trap and responds with what I think is one of the most provocative statements in all of Scripture. I want you to hear this, verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are many more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also as many animals? I want to unpack what God does here, because I think this is brilliant. So God acknowledges Jonah's big emotions over the short-lived plant that Jonah didn't grow. But rather than shutting this down because Jonah's being crazy, God instead runs with it, right? God says, effectively, Jonah, it's great that you finally care about anything other than yourself, even if it's selfishly. That's progress. Caring for plants, that's rad. Keep it up, Jonah. However, now Jonah... For the sake of argument, let's say that you are justified in having big feels over this little plant. If so, let me ask you this. Aren't humans and animals just as valuable as one plant? In fact, aren't they, aren't they more valuable? Thus, wouldn't I also be justified to have at least the same level of emotions and concern for, I don't know, let's just say for the sake of argument, a city containing thousands of misguided people and animals, all of whom I have actually created and nurtured and cared for for years and generations? Would that be okay with you, Jonah? And we're like, oh, snap. How's Jonah going to respond to that? Get bodied. But guess what? With that, the book abruptly ends. It just ends with this question looming. It's so bizarre, but I think also so brilliant, so subversive, because what's Jonah been about from the start? To be a mirror, right? Its goal has always been to be a mirror. We don't get Jonah's response because this question isn't really being addressed to Jonah. Who's it being addressed to? It's being addressed to us. Jonah concludes with God asking us, do we care more about comfort than people? and animals. Are we willing to give God permission to love our enemies? And in that, Jonah's finale smacks us in the face with something quite provocative. 
That is, I think it smacks us in the face with the scandalous nature of God's love and grace, which, as this reveals, are actually quite unsettling things if we take any amount of time to actually think about them. Because here's the truth. This Exodus 34 stuff is easy to stomach when it's for us. But you know what's not easy to stomach? The unsaid implications about it. Because if we accept that God is fundamentally this way all the time, then we also must accept that he's that way for those people that we despise. And then Jonah's rant becomes something I sympathize with greatly. I mean, just think about the person who's wronged you most in your life, who has robbed you, lied to you, cheated on you, hurt you, or the people you love. Now do you get Jonah's objections? I think I do. And my enemies have done far less than the Assyrians ever did to Israel. Hold up, God. They, they, they don't deserve grace without retribution, without punishment. Not after what they did to me. That's not justice. Is anyone provoked yet? This conclusion demands that we stare deeply into the scandalous, scandalous nature of God's loving grace. And in doing so, Jonah's story confronts something that I think has opposed God's work to restore his world more than almost anything else in human history. And that is our obsession with having enemies. This whole story, God has wanted Jonah to realize that he's not a nationalistic, tribalistic God, that he transcends such simplistic frameworks, that his story has always been about redemptive grace, not judgment, reaching the Ninevites, that his justice has always been about restoration, not punishment for the sake of punishment. And yet, Jonah is too invested in these frameworks. He's too thoroughly demonized the Ninevites to even listen despite the fact that they embrace God while he pouts on a hillside, which we laugh at. But y'all, that's us. That's us. We all have fears, distaste, and grievances that we associate with people who have hurt us or disagreed with us, some of which, I'll be honest, are valid. But here's the problem. Rather than letting God get that poison out of us, what do we do instead? We feed it, and we scapegoat others through it reducing their humanity, simplifying them to just how they have wronged us and nothing more, labeling them enemies and ourselves the good guys while becoming blind to our own wrongs and thinking that those people are the real problem in God's good world, not us. And then we just act accordingly. Accepting and exacting our pound of flesh while thinking that that's changed anything about this world like it's balanced some cosmic scale. Anyone know what I'm talking about? This is an alien. Just look at our world. It's shaped to its core by tribalism and scapegoating, by this temptation to define us and them through man-made categories, which we then use to validate doing every kind of evil imaginable to those we deem enemies, while calling it justice. That's, that's crazy, because y'all, how, how has this worked out for us? It's destroyed our world, has it not? Has it ever produced anything but endless cycles of violence, retaliation, escalation, and devastation? We know how this story ends, and yet we do it over and over and over and over again, expecting a different result. That's insane. 
That's what brought arrival to mind. God gets that if we're going to be restored, then this us versus them framework, this concept of the enemy must go. That's what Jonah wants to get out of us. And that's what Christ offers throughout his teaching. He wasn't joking. He wasn't playing with us when he said, turn the other cheek. When he said, pray for those who persecute you. When he said, love your enemies as yourself. And yet so often we are too invested for our need for enemies to even begin to accept that. Like Jonah, we say, that's nice, but naive. You've got this one wrong, Jesus. That's not how things work in this world. That doesn't win in this world. Like our pessimism excuses us from following him as his disciples. But here's the thing. Jesus never said that loving our enemies would win by this world's standards. It led Jesus to a Roman cross. No, Jesus said that we must love our enemies because it's the only response to evil that carries any potential to restore and heal what's gone wrong in this world rather than just adding to it. There is a parable from Eastern Europe that I think captures this perfectly, and it's one of those things that I just will never forget. It goes like this. An angel appeared to a farmer saying, God's decided to bless you. Name it, anything, on earth, and it's yours. And the farmer, oh, his mind started racing. He started thinking through everything that could benefit his life, land, money, crops. But then the angel interjected. Oh, one more thing, almost forgot. The only condition is that your neighbor will receive double whatever you ask for. To which the farmer who resented his neighbor immediately responded, in that case, take my eyes. Y'all, that's the human story. For as long as there's been a human story. Am I right? And look where it's gotten us. That's what God's question at the end of Jonah demands that we wrestle with as his people. We aren't called to be crass pragmatists. We can't fight evil with evil, even if we win by this world's standards. No, we're called to be conduits of God's character, not this world. Conduits of love, grace, mercy, compassion, we're called to be citizens of a different kingdom, which is the kingdom of God, whose king is Christ. Not because it's always fun, but because our king insisted that it's what this world needs. And from where I'm standing, he's right. Anyone else? Our world doesn't need more retaliation, escalation, and devastation of enemies. We've got enough of that. This world needs the path of the cross. The one place in human history where the ruinous spiral of eye for an eye vengeance just stopped. We need the path of this Exodus 34 God who looked at evil and how it's ravaged our world and chose to heal it, not by retaliating, but by extending mercy and grace to it. Christ said, that's the way this world will be remade. That's the path we're called to as disciples. As people embraced by this God, we're called to believe in our bones that no matter what you've done, no matter what someone else has done, no matter where they've been, no matter who they've hurt, that this God sees it all and still says, I love you. There is grace for you. Your story is not over. I want your good. We have to believe in our bones that God says that to even Jonah. That's everything. 
That's what this whole story of God's about, which is good news, right? But there's a catch, because such extravagant grace is an all-or-nothing proposition. Thus, if we receive it freely, then we must also give it away freely to those we sinfully call enemies. We can't hate that God loves the enemy, because that's why God loves us even when we become little Jonah's acting a fool in his world. That's just who he is. And if we can stomach that, we'll see that that's actually really, really good news. Amen? Amen. Let us worship together this God of scandalous grace.